0: Hi there. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here with me for another episode of Theory of Change. It's great to have you here. Got another great program for you today and a great discussion. But before we get into that, I did want to just go through a little bit of housekeeping. This show is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community and you can get all kinds of great podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology, and how they all interrelate with each other. And if you want to go to the archives of Theory of Change, just go to theoryofchange.show, and you can go directly to the archives there, and we've got transcripts and video and audio of all the episodes. But the full transcripts are only available to Patreon subscribers, which, of course, takes me to the next part, which is we need your help to keep videos like these going and and podcasts like these going. So please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. It is imperative that we support independent media in this country. We're seeing such a conglomerate takeover of everything in media and it's, it's really harming things because it's kind of dumbing things down to a bad level and not looking at the larger trends of how we're doing in this country and elsewhere. So please do support us at patreon.com slash discoverflux. All right, well, so with that out of the way, I will introduce today's show and today's guest. We've talked a lot on this program about the growing threat of political extremism and how far-right activists are leveraging religion and business connections to build power over the minds of millions of Americans. And yet, despite all of that, It's also the case that people can change. No matter how strong they hold their viewpoints today, no one was born with their opinions. And having been born and raised in fundamentalist Mormonism and then left it, I can personally attest to the fact that people can change their opinions when exposed to the facts. The process is usually a gradual one, but it is real for many of us. The results of the 2022 elections in the United States are also proof of this as well on a much bigger scale. Almost everywhere, Republicans who actively put forward Donald Trump's election lies lost their races. And interestingly enough, many of those losses seem to have come at the hands of people who supported Republicans who didn't promote Trump's election lies. In Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and lots of places in between, millions of Republican-leaning voters couldn't bring themselves to support Donald Trump's dangerous, sore loser campaign. Joining me to discuss what's going on here is Melissa Peltier. She is the director and writer of a documentary called The Game Is Up! Disillusioned Trump Voters Tell Their Stories. And it's a film that closely profiles several people who supported Donald Trump in 2016 and then decided to change their minds. And it asks also why they did so as well. So thanks for being here, Melissa.
1: You're very welcome. I'm really happy to be here.
0: All right. We're going to play the trailer in a little bit here, but just give us a a little quick overview of the film and what you were trying to do with it.
1: Well, I was inspired in 2017 to to the middle of 2018 by watching a former Republican Tea Party congressman and former, well, at the time he was current, very right-wing shock jock radio guy with a very successful show, Joe Walsh. I didn't have the highest opinion of him before this. And I started watching him, and I remember reading something about woke Joe Walsh. And so I started following him, and all he was really doing was just asking questions about Trump. He was trying to support him, but he was asking questions. And as time went on, his questions got more and more pointed and more and more critical of Trump until finally, after Helsinki in July 2018, he just said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this. And that was great to watch in real time, because to me, all the things he was pointing out were absolutely factual and logical. And I thought, naively, that the whole Republican Congress would follow suit, and they didn't at all. So That inspired me to look for more people like Joe. And I was just always curious about what was it that changed your mind? Why did you vote for Trump? And we definitely found that not everybody was a crazy racist or a crazy white supremacist or whatever. Everybody had their own reasons in 2016. They had personal reasons. And generally, when they changed, it was because of something that touched them personally. And so I just wanted to give people permission to change their minds about Trump by seeing others who had done so.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Well, I'm gonna roll the trailer here and then we'll get into talking about some of the other people as well that you show in the trailer. When you're in the conservative media world like I was in, you are told to say every day that Donald Trump walks on water. I was told by my bosses to only say good things about Donald Trump. I told them to go.
1: Most of our opinions about Donald Trump do not come from CNN or from MSNBC or from Fox. Most of our opinions about Donald Trump come from Donald Trump himself.
0: People say, oh, I should get over it, I should move on, but it's like, how can you? I mean, they lied about liberals, lied about Democrats, lied about Trump. It's kind of hard to just move on.
1: I know quite a few people my age who are in the Republican Party who, they're thinking about leaving the Republican Party. They're thinking about leaving this Trumpism, this phenomenon.
0: I threw up the red flag, I threw up the white flag, I threw up whatever I could throw up as a warning that this was bad agricultural policy and it was gonna hurt us for a long time. I was reading the Bible and reading some scripture and in the Bible and some verses jumped out at me. And I had to repent for that. I, I, I said, God, I am
1: sorry for voting for him.
0: What does Jesus say? Love God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Where is that love God,
1: love neighbor, love self? That's the kingdom of God. And what we're living with right now is Christianity that is about empire, not kingdom of God. This is not a political issue. This virus does not care. It doesn't care the color of your skin. It doesn't care about the God to whom you pray. It infects, it spreads like wildfire, and it can kill you.
0: So uh, this was a pandemic film as well. How much did that affect things for you?
1: Quite a bit. We started filming in January and February 2020. And we were trying to raise money at the same time. We really didn't have any, we just sort of, you make it and they will come attitude toward it. And we went to New Hampshire with Joe Walsh. He had just done Iowa. And Probably two weeks after we came back from New Hampshire, we were getting ready to go out again and everything locked down. And nobody knew anything then. There was no vaccine. It was the real lockdown, like don't leave your house, order everything in. And that was really challenging. I'm an old school filmmaker and a part of what I like to do is to go into people's lives and really observe and then follow up on what I observe. And I realized I couldn't do that. So after a few weeks of just being paralyzed, we devised a production method, which I guess is kind of common now, where I was directing literally through Zoom. I mean, somebody would have a little iPhone or an iPad or a laptop. And because there was so little work, we were able to get one man or two man band production crews in all the local places very, very affordably. And we saved all the money we would have spent on travel and hotels and all that stuff by having me interview people long distance and it worked great. I was afraid it would look like different. I was afraid that it wouldn't have the intimacy and that really, really bothered me, but it actually does. I don't think you can really tell that most of the interviews I'm miles and miles away, not all of them. We did do some of the local New York stuff ourselves and, uh, there was there were a couple, but basically what we do is we'd ask people, how comfortable are you with having a camera crew? Do you, would you be comfortable having them shoot you on your front porch? Would you be comfortable having them shoot you in your house? And everyone had a different answer. And so we respected all of them and nobody got COVID <laughs> and it went, it went really, really well and saved us hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we never would have raised. So in a way, it made the film possible
0: mm-hmm all right well yeah I'm glad that that worked out for you in that regard <laughs> so so some of the the people that you you profiled so you you mentioned Joe Walsh the the former Republican congressman slash radio host T- tell us about some of the other people that, that you
1: spoke yes of. yes Joe I never thought I would say this but I'm very good friends with Joe now and I really he and his wife are wonderful wonderful people and just reminded me of how I grew up which is that no one when I was growing up no one vilified Republicans. My mother used to have fights with the doctor neighbor up the street when she came over for cocktails, but they weren't insulting fights. They were actually fights over policy. And then everyone hugged each other and kissed each other and went home. And that has changed so much. And so anyway, Joe is a great guy and it just shows you that. And one of the things I wanted to do with this film is to show Trumpers as human because they're not all evil people. (laughs) I don't know about Proud Boys or those guys, but The ordinary Trump voter in 2016 was an ordinary person who was not knee deep in policy or not paying attention or just seeing what they wanted to see and hearing what they wanted to hear. One of those people was Bacha Goldberg. She was at the time of Trump's election, she was 17. But she was already a huge rising star in the sort of the Charlie Kirk kind of Republican turning point kind of young Republican set. And she was Republican all the way. She started the Brooklyn Young Republicans Club. She she ran a bunch of campaigns as a, like a 15, 16, 17-year-old. A bunch of actual real big campaigns in New York and she was just looked at as a rising star because she was so smart and so clear and so articulate. And she was all for Trump. In fact, she was so for Trump, she went to a bunch of rallies, stood in line for hours. And she went to the inauguration. She was working on a campaign of a guy who was running for mayor of New York. And he got tickets to really good seats to the inauguration and to the best inaugural ball. With There's a photo of her there with Kellyanne Conway. And she said it was the best time of her life. She felt so important and wonderful. And she remembers seeing the people in the crowd who were saying, not my president. And she she said, I really thought they were just mentally unstable. I, I, I didn't know what they were talking about, but ultimately she said they saw what I couldn't see then. So she came all the way around. And the reason she came around was Charlottesville. That was her reason because she's Jewish from a family with a lot of Holocaust deaths in the background. And her parents were refuseniks from Russia. They were Jewish refugees who'd come over in the eighties or, just before the wall fell, fell. and she was born here. They weren't going to have kids in Russia. That's how badly they felt the authoritarian movement, the communist culture was. They didn't want to raise a child in that culture. So they got here, they both became citizens, and then they raised her. And they had been telling her their whole lives. They didn't try to interfere with any of her beliefs, or her father was pretty right-wing, her mother was... I would say she was independent, but maybe very human rights leaning, but her mother didn't try to interfere with her very far right kind of belief system. And she just told her everything that had happened to them and what signs to look out for when you're looking out for fascism. And when, again, when Putin, when Trump agreed with Putin in Helsinki in 2018, she was stunned. So it was between that, the Charlottesville thing, and Putin that she realized this this guy is really bad for the country. And she didn't want to tell anyone for the longest time. And in fact, there's a nice tie-in because it was actually her seeing Joe Walsh come out and lose his TV show and lose his radio show and be pilloried, but he still had the bravery and went on to speak out against Trump. And she said, if he can do it, I can do it because I don't have as much to lose. But she did lose a lot actually. But she is a brilliant young woman and her first election that she voted in was 2020 and she voted for Joe Biden. She's Right now she's in college in in Israel. But she's a really wonderful, brave, strong, and very smart woman. And as she says in the documentary, once you start seeing the holes in Trump's myth, you can't unsee them anymore. And then you see more and you see more. And that's what happened to her. When we first formulated what we wanted to do with the film the producer Mary Craven and I we decided to look set up some ideals of people we wanted and one of the things we wanted was a farmer a midwestern farmer who changed their mind and in the beginning it sounded impossible but we found Chris Gibbs who was a salt of the earth, Ohio farmer, very successful farm. It's quite large at the moment, but he started with nothing. And he is in his sixties and he was a Reagan Republican all the way. He was very diplomacy, open up the world, human rights, all the things Republicans once said they were. And he actually was the head of his local central committee. And what happened to him was he saw he was excited when Trump got elected. He didn't really want to vote for him at first, but then he saw he did some things early on that that got him really excited. And he thought, hey, we're gonna shake this up. This is gonna be really interesting. This guy might not be bad at all. And then he saw what Trump was doing to trade. And the trade, the tariffs, and all the messing around he did by picking fights with our trading partners. It's, it's not spoken about that much, but it really destroyed the alg- agricultural markets and, and the business. And a lot of farmers went bankrupt. Suicides among farmers were huge because they you can't really hang on that long as a farmer if you have all these bad seasons. And when you can't sell your stuff, that's bad. So he got very angry about that. And he felt that the subsidies that, that Trump admin was was giving to farmer kind of to make up for it were it was like hush money to him so he became very outspoken and he was disavowed by the Ohio Republicans, which he'd been a part of for like thirty years and that was that was it for him he he decided to speak up and he's just a wonderful, incredibly intelligent, articulate salt of the earth guy who who knows how to speak in metaphors and in stories. And he was a real find and he's just a lovely, lovely man. He, he came to our, a couple of our roles in LA with us and he was like a celebrity to all the people in the audience. Cause he's very tall and very distinctive looking. And let's see after Chris, there was a David, there was, sorry, David Weissman after Chris, there was David Weissman who you might know from Twitter, if you're on Twitter, David was not only pro-Trump, he was a Trump troll. I mean, he was a real, behind-the-scenes, organized, harassed people troll, nasty as all get out. And he believed, he was a veteran, and he believed a thousand percent that Democrats were evil and that, that Barack Obama was evil and Hillary smelled like sulfur and the whole all the, the lies. He believed them. And he harassed people, especially celebrities who were anti-Trump. And they would—the the goal was to harass them till they block you, and then that's sort of like a like a like a
0: a bad head over your mm-hmm. mantle, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so he did that until he went after Sarah Silverman, the comedian and actress, and she was nice to him. She didn't say anything bad back. She didn't block him. She just very cordially explained the facts of what she was saying and asked him if he was more interested in being right or the truth. And that really got him because he thought he was seeing the truth. So he asked more questions. And then people in her follower brigade started to contact him and give him things to read. And especially one woman, Sarah O'Connell, who is a person he never ever would have been friends with before this, but they really created a, like a, almost a two year friendship, long distance, obviously during lockdown, and also she's and she lives in England now. But she started to send him multi sources and very well sourced, not not liberal source, but deep facts, primary sources, statistics that would basically proved Trump was lying. And to his credit, he read. And the more he saw, the worse it got for him. And the more he he felt he'd been lied to. And he may have been targeted because he was a member of the military. We don't know that. But that was sort of where his political views formed, which is scary. But he came all the way around until, I mean, he's just, he's so strongly anti-Trump now, and he's like a super Democrat, (laughs) which is really interesting. I don't think Bacha really became a Democrat. Chris Gibbs did actually become a Democrat, I think in 2021. I think he became a Democrat, sometime in there. And then we also have three evangelicals, which I'm sure you could identify with. And they talk about how basically they were told who to vote for from the pulpit. Even if they weren't told directly, there was no mistaking what their pastors were telling them. And and one of them was at Liberty University. And he said, there was no question. He was afraid not to vote for Trump because he was afraid he'd be ostracized.
0: So what is Liberty University for those who don't know what that is?
1: Liberty University is one of the biggest Christian evangelical universities in the United States, very much like Bob Jones or some of the other ones that you might have heard of. It was founded by Jerry Falwell Sr., who in the 80s, was the founder of the Moral Majority, Moral Majority. And he passed it on, basically, to his son, who was not a minister and is not a minister, but he started running it. And his son really upped the ante. He raised so much money for it. And it became like a country club, practically. <laughs> and a lot of evangelicals go there. I don't know what kind of an education you get there. I really don't know. But one of our... our evangelical people that we talked to was a young man named Nathan Munson. And 2016 was his first election that he voted in because he was uh, just turned 18. And he told us that the university was pretty much pushing them in the direction of voting for Trump.
0: Reality for a lot of people who are raised in these fundamentalist religions that the leaders may not explicitly tell you who to vote for, but they tell you which party is evil and which party serves Satan. And so that's, that's a pretty clear instruction as to who you should be supporting.
1: It's very clean. Our other couple that we had, they ended up after they were basically, they were directly told by their pastor to vote for Trump. And for reasons of, of abortion, and, and they said Hillary Clinton was going to try to destroy the church the minute she got in, which is insane, <laughs> because she's actually quite a religious person. And that was, it scared them. And the husband really felt bad after he voted for Trump, and he didn't know why. He just felt a gut feeling. He was a new Christian, only four years had he been saved. And he just felt bad about it. And someone at his work challenged him about that and because he was a guy who talked a lot about Christianity, how it changed his life. And that sort of woke him up, snapped him out of it. And then he did his own research with the Bible, with scripture. And he basically, what he dug up was that Trump is everything that Christ was not. He's the opposite. And they ended up leaving their church after, after, 2020 because their preacher from the pulpit was preaching about the stolen election. And they just were, they knew it was a lie and they just walked. They said, we're sorry, we can't stay. And they're still evangelical, but they couldn't stay in that particular parish anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, and uh, what about some of the, the you, there was, I guess, so those are the three then that you profiled? Yeah,
1: Nathan and Ron and Cindy Hawthorne who were their mm-hmm. names, the couple. Yeah. Well, they and one of our film festivals, too, which is great. Ocean City, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess for a lot of pretty
0: much everybody that you, you, you talk about in the film, that it was a gradual process. It, it was something that didn't happen overnight and I'm sure was frustrating to people that they knew who disagreed with them, but they didn't give up on them, basically.
1: No. And I think, again, there was no, there was no one reason. Everyone had something affect them personally that woke them up. And I don't know your situation with getting out of of Mormonism, but I know that in cults that usually there's that moment where somehow your cognitive dissonance sort of snaps. And what happens there is either you let in new information or you shut down even more. And these people let in new information. And that's the key to change and literally to living an honest life, in my opinion, Yeah. change when faced with new information that proves your old information was wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and that definitely was the case for me with, with leaving fundamentalist Mormonism. I mean, I had a, I had I had I had gone to church services every day of my life basically or every Sunday sorry every mm-hmm. Sunday of my life and I was I was 27 and I had just recently moved to a new place with one of my brothers and the first Sunday that we were there we got up in time to to leave and I and I said to him I don't really like going to it do you I don't want to go and he and he said neither do I and so we stopped going, but basically once, once that whole sort of the habit broke for us, we, uh, then our, our parents started asking us, well, you still believe in it, right? You still believe in it. And, I, and it, it occurred to me finally, I've never actually looked at the evidence of whether these beliefs are true. I had just, I had been told from a, my childhood that they were true and i never had assumed otherwise and 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 i kind of had a same a similar thing with my exit from right wing media and, and politics that i i had cuz again i had brought brought up and i had developed a career in that world and Basically, I I had started writing a book to sort of try to get... So after I left Mormonism, I I became non-religious. And I spent a number of years trying to get Republican and right-wing activists to become more tolerant of non-Christians and non-religious people. And in the course of writing a book that was kind of urging that, I realized, you know what? This could be the best written prose ever, And it wouldn't matter because they think that what they're doing is serving God. And I can't argue someone out of that.
1: I think some of them, I think most of them think it, really believe it. But I do think a lot of them use it, use that excuse. And usually they're the ones in, they're in Congress (laughs) and religion is a, a good tool for them.
0: Mm -hmm. No, use it as an excuse of what, to To themselves or to the public?
1: Well, as an excuse to to lie, (laughs) really, Mm -hmm. an excuse to be a hypocrite and lie publicly, despite what you're really doing privately, because you tell yourself you're lying for the greater good and you're lying for the glory of God. And I I don't read anything in the New Testament anyway that condones that, but... Mm -hmm. I read it several times. I mean, I was raised—I was raised Catholic and Episcopalian, and and also I was raised. My mother was agnostic, but she wanted me to understand world religion. So she used to take me when I was really small. I mean, like we're talking like six, seven, eight. To she took me to a number of synagogues. She took me to Greek Orthodox church. She took me to a Buddhist retreat. I mean, she she wanted me to see, and she used to say, and she was way ahead of her time, she was also raised Episcopalian. And my grandmother, her mother was sort of my mentor in that religion. And I, I actually did return to it for a long time. But she used to say that every religion has some piece of the truth. But the minute somebody tells you, they have the only truth, run. <laughs> she used to say that all the time. And I really, that's sort of what I live by now, because what religion you are is an accident of how you're born. So is most of the world that is Islamic, not Christian, are they all wrong just because of how they were born, where they were born, to whom they were born? I mean, it's, it's, when you take it apart, you realize that religious doctrine is a choice and it's often used to control people. Not to bring them closer to God,
0: hmm. yeah, well, now, I guess since the film came out, um, have you have you been contacted by people that wanted to share their own experience with you or or experience with people that they knew who had the yes, I've had, had
1: a lot of people talk about people they knew. I've had a lot of people show the film to people they knew, and i i don't I haven't gotten any good anecdotes about changes. I got a, a recent anecdote about somebody. Who had convinced their sister, but and, and felt just so grateful that she was out of the the cult, but felt like she was still sort of fudging <laughs> whether Trump was great or not, and that that he was really excited that that she saw this because you know, she pushed her even more further that way because we we vetted this a million ways to Sunday. I again, I'm, I come from old school. I come from an era where when you did a nonfiction program for, say, NBC, you had to have three references proving any any claim you made. And that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, you don't have to have anything. So that was really important to me. And, and, and my my, co, my colleagues, mary Carry Craven and Arliss Ernst, who was our co-producer and editor, I mean, getting the stuff right and making sure the sources were right and correct was really important.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you don't want to be wrong in a movie talking about disinformation.
1: <laughs> oh, no, you don't. You don't. I, I, there's a lot of really interesting things that have happened as we submitted to film festivals and got comments back from some of them or got nothing back from some of them. It was interesting. It was really interesting. But we did, we have won awards in 20 festivals, including a lot of best documentary, a lot of some best directing, best storytelling, best editing. So we're we're very proud of what we did and the fact that we did it on a shoestring under all sorts of bizarre circumstances and that all the people who are in it are so proud they were in it and you know, nobody had second thoughts. There were people that we were looking, like I had a, a dream of a border, a Hispanic family living on the Texas border who had been there for a long time. This is like very specific, but who voted for Trump and then realized that Trump was coming for their land to build the wall. And that happened to a lot of people. And we did reach out to some of them who were in the worst way had discovered what Trump was really about, but they were in the middle of lawsuits because eminent domain, they offer you pennies on the dollar and you have to go back and fight to get what your land is really worth or to fight them doing it all together. And so nobody wanted to be speaking during their lawsuit which makes sense. And then there were also, there were also, there was a few other groups that I was, I was hoping to get an African-American man who was conservative because there's a lot of that, not too much, thank God, but there's, there's a very sort of staunch anti-LGBTQ male thing in the, in the African-American community. And that sometimes causes people to vote for people like Trump, but also Trump, Appealed to men who felt like they were men, real men, which is insane. Because after five times dodging the draft, and a guy who puts on makeup every day and doesn't comb over and fake spray tan and is just incredibly vain, is is really and has never. I mean, his the only sport he does is golf, and he doesn't even walk. That's the only exercise you get. Golfing is walking on the course, and he drives. So, I mean, the fact that he was he was put up to be this great macho guy, but you know, he has the rhetoric down. And so I wanted a guy from that community who had changed his mind. And we looked and looked and we didn't get anyone who wanted to talk, which Mm -hmm. again, a lot of times people would talk to us and then change their mind. They're happy to talk on the phone. But when you really think about sitting in front of a camera that everyone's going to see, and that was it. It was that peer pressure. And it was that peer pressure that I was trying to, to reach through to break with this documentary because so many people are in communities that all believe the same thing, especially evangelicals. They're in sort of semi isolated groups and they don't know anyone who didn't vote for Trump. I mean, that's just how it is. You don't, I mean, you don't go to a barbecue and talk about anything, but how great Trump is and how awful the Democrats are. And so my, my theory was there were people out there who were probably very good people who are going to bed, with a knot in their stomach a lot, but they didn't feel they had any permission to talk about it. And I just, I wanted people to see that other people had done it and done well and, and yeah. how they did it. Because mm-hmm. You're right. It was a very gradual process for everybody. Nobody had like that overnight boom. They had, they had instigating moments that pushed them all the way, but there was always a long, long period before that.
0: So I, just to go back to something you were saying mm-hmm. earlier there, that because of, of geography and because of political sorting, urban liberal, and rural conservative, a lot of people, they really never come into contact with somebody who disagrees with them politically, unless they might happen to be related to them. But I mean, especially where you live in New York, your average true believing Trump voter, it's almost like just just a fictional character you see on your TV.
1: Actually not real. you got to realize Staten Island is incredibly right wing. It's, it's where a lot of working class... My, my husband grew up in, in Brooklyn in a very working class family. His father was an iron worker and his brother was an iron worker and, and his grandfather was a mounted cop. And the people they hung with were cops and firemen and, and iron workers and, and worked in, in uh, for the city. And they were, they're very conservative and they, they were Democrats for a long time. And then they started to change probably around the Bush era when Democrats started to be portrayed as traitors because they were against the Iraq war or they, they were for the Iraq war, but then they discovered bad stuff about it. And so we are actually, the thing about New York is it's very, it is a melting pot. It runs on immigrants so it's very diverse, the city. I'm out here in Rockland County, New York, which is about 40 minutes north, 30 minutes north, driving. You can't take a subway here. It's more of a small town. And it's heavily red. I mean, I would say it's probably not so heavy, but it's like 55, 45, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it's, I, I was always mm-hmm. surprised. I And I didn't learn that until after Trump, really. I didn't learn how, but yeah. I- go on some of these hiking trails and some people I like known and been friendly with and just adored for years suddenly started saying things that I knew weren't true and I was mm-hmm. really shocked so that's not necessarily true and it's not nor is it in Massachusetts where I was born in a, and we have our we have a cottage on the beach there
0: um mm-hmm. yeah well I guess nonetheless though I mean for your average Manhattanite left-wing Manhattanite for a lot of them who have only lived there yeah, or Brooklyn yeah, yeah. or something like that, sure, like you know, that they, I mean. uh, yeah, they, they, they don't see it's like, it's it's hard for them to fathom why someone could support Trump or support Republicans and not just be just this flagrant racist or something like that. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's not real.
1: And that's why I wanted to also show the, these people as human. We're just all flawed human beings <laughs> trying to do our best and, Sometimes our best is influenced by things that shouldn't be influenced by.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and and that in, in some cases there might be people who work in some industry or live in some area that yeah. it actually might, in fact, be better for them to do it personally. But and and yet, for a lot of I think a lot of analysis that you see in progressive or left of center media, sometimes that there's this idea that, well, th- this idea, what's the matter with Kansas, that people can't possibly yeah. have a reason for backing right wing ideas. And, and of course, and the reality is, I right. mean, it is true that these politicians and whatnot, they actually are making anti-populist sentiment. But if you're not in policies, but if you're not conversant in this stuff, Sure. But how, how are you going to know what their policies exactly. are? Exactly.
1: I, I people are sub- subjected to biased information and they have no idea it's biased. And I would say that on the left as well, but primarily on the right, because they have Fox News and they have the, the crazy right wing media, which is getting, I think, crazier all the time, just saying ridiculous, outlandish, not true falses, falsehoods. And uh, I think because the liberal media is not really liberal, it's corporate, the corporate media, which is all the mainstream media, the networks, the cable channels, anything that's not independent media, like you were talking about earlier, they are, they have the mandate of being both sides. So everything that somebody says, they could say that the earth is flat and that is given an equal weight to the earth is round. Well, let's have a discussion about it. Let's let's hear from you. And then and then they, what gets ratings is people fighting about it. <laughs> so they want to mm-hmm. get the most far out there, Earth is flatter, and the most far out there, Earth is rounder, and put them together in a ring and let them go at it. And yeah. that has really changed the dialogue in America.
0: It has, and it's and it's such a betrayal of of true journalism as well. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is that you that. You are supposed to be helping people build uh, on this on their stack of knowledge, not continually making them start over. And I think like even if you believe in this this marketplace of ideas, quote unquote, I mean, the reality is like when you go to a supermarket, you're not seeing the supermarket say, hey, we're going to sell you beef. That is uninspected, and we're going to offer you beef that is inspected, and you can choose which one you want. Do you want the unexp- un- uninspected beef? Because you know what, it's going to be half the cost, right? But you might get really sick from it. But hey, you know what? It might be half the cost, and and here and the reality is, some people that's a, that's would buy idea. that. They would buy that beef, of course uh, because of course. it's cheaper and for right. whatever and and it's the same thing with with uh, information that right. as a as an information purveyor a journalist or whether you're a social media company, you have an obligation to have quality control in your marketplace
1: yes. yes, and I think america one our first amendment is one of the envies of the world, but at the same time it has been weaponized against us, and a country like Germany has a hate speech out (laughs) exception. And we were kind of going that direction. And there was a lot of controversy about it because there's a lot of people who are just religious purists about the First Amendment. But the truth is hate speech is not, especially if it's really inciting people to view another group in a negative way. And again, that's that was something I didn't want to do in this documentary. I did not want to, to paint Republicans as bad people because they're not. They're not. I mean, there's bad Democrats and there's bad Republicans. But overall, I still believe that people are genuinely try to be good. And I think we have to believe that what we do is good. And that's part of where we start making excuses. And well, I just said that because... God will want me to. We, w- we want to feel that everything we do is good. And that's a natural human thing. And that's why it's hard for, for others to change our minds. Because I think we have this like a switch that just wants to be right. And can't. it's very difficult to admit you're wrong. And it's very difficult to realize that you were really wrong and how wrong you were actually hurt other people. And it takes a lot of courage to come out and say that and to change or to learn. And that's why I really believe the people in our film are so brave. Yeah. Well, now it's
0: also the the, the radicalization. I mean, because it, it's a little bit tricky because on on the one hand, these people with these extreme far right fundamentalist beliefs, they've always been there in the Republican party they've always had power. I mean, Jerry Falwell as a person you mentioned, but you know, Trump brought them to the forefront and ended up really empowering a lot of extreme extremist people like Kanye West, like that Nick Fuentes guy. But the, I mean, the, the reality is though that because the Republican party has gotten more extreme Democrats ha- have had to adjust how they campaign as well, and and I think though well, I'm curious what you think about what what Joe Biden has been doing in the past two two to three years since he came in.
1: Well, Joe Biden was always a centrist. To him. He was always extremely human rights motivated, but he was also a centrist, and he was the the, the glad handing guy who would work across the aisle and get compromises done in all the time he's been there. And I think he is now further left than he was because he realizes that their base is becoming further left. But what is further left, really? I mean, is it we want to be communists? I haven't heard a lot of that from really anybody except the super fringe. People who are anti-war all the time build flowers instead of bombs or whatever. That's not the majority I don't think of the Democratic Party certainly not the Democrats that I know and have grown up with and have I've lived in very democratic places like LA <laughs> I mean that really Hollywood LA was I would say that was much more like your, your example of people who never saw a Trump supporter <laughs> if you're in that entertainment industry it's really really hard <laughs> to see one I mean even if even if you've got like a studio head who does vote Republican quietly you're not going to hear it. So, but you do hear, there are a lot of people who do that by the way. There's a lot of people who are very anti-tax, anti-regulation in the businesses and they will quietly vote Republican now and then or maybe more than now and then. But you won't be hearing that publicly. And so you don't think anyone believes it. So that is that's part of it, but Joe Biden, I think he's done a good job and I think it's been amazing what he's been able to accomplish with all the, the boundaries that that he's been given with a Christian cinema and Manchin in Congress and not being able to get a majority and now she's become an independent today. Which and she said, "Don't worry, my beliefs and my actions will not change." And I said, "That's like that's what I'm worried about." <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, well, I guess
0: I'm thinking about like his idea of. Talking about the ultra MAGA Republican, and he's trying to, Biden has been putting a a strong emphasis to try to say that these are different than your conventional previous Republicans. Well, they are. Yeah. And I I think that 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 was effective. I I think it's
1: effective too. And I think, I I don't think he said it, and he, it's been misquoted, but I don't think he, I thought he made it clear he's not talking about all Republicans. He made it very clear. And Joe Biden is not a guy who, I I like that he's he's so much older now and he's lost so much in his life because I feel like now he can actually, he's not as, as concerned with being loved by everybody and he's more concerned with doing right. And I believe that he wants the best for this country. He doesn't want us to be communist. He doesn't want us to be socialist. He wants... A little more fairness, which is really speaking of people who I haven't met other people, I've talked to a lot of Republicans and read a lot of Republicans who clearly have never met a Democrat, or have never really had a conversation with one, because they wouldn't say the outlandish things they say. like,,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like uh, drag shows are grooming. Well, drag <laughs> drag has a wonderful history. Going back to the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, that's where it started. I mean, it, it wasn't drag like we see drag now, but men dressing as women and going on stage and really dressing as women is an old tradition of the theater and, and a beloved tradition. And you could look at like Mil- Milton Berle, not a communist, <laughs> Milton Berle, or some of the other people who won't.
0: Well, well, actually, Rudy Giuliani has done drag. <laughs> what,
1: what? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Milo Yiannopoulos did uh-huh. drag. But yeah. it's, drag is just, first of all, some people who do drag aren't gay. Some people, most people aren't trans who do drag. And I have my house in Cape Cod is in a, in a very, very LGBTQ area. I mean, uh-huh. one of the top areas in the country. And I've grown up going there every year and i saw dragster. So i saw it. i guess i grew up believing this was all normal because it is and that's why it's it's really astonishing to see it being so rapidly weaponized against people i care about a lot of people
0: mhm yeah well i and i think it's it's a way to kind of smuggle back on those issues that that the far right lost on so like they Never got over a same-sex marriage, and no. and and you and which is interesting because like the the right-wing elites never got over it, but their voters actually did. So like when you yeah, poll,
1: isn't it like isn't it up to like seventy-five percent or seventy-one percent or something
0: I in the country itself, like seventies, yeah. But like even a majority of Republican voters, oh yeah, support same-sex marriage, and but but. And, and and it's something that, you know, and this really does illustrate the dichotomy that I think a lot of, of people who are left of center don't quite get is that the Republican voter, the Republican electorate is very different from the reactionary faction yes. that controls yes. the Republican Party. A lot of a lot people of don't ones. get that.
1: Yeah, no. And, and that again, that was another thing I wanted to point out in our documentary. Republicans, like Democrats, are ordinary people. Some of them are jerks and some of them aren't. Some of the Democrats are jerks and some are um, mm-hmm. Some Democrats have like insane ideas. I always say, like the Green New Deal, which I believe in so much in terms of theory, but th- there really was no Green New Deal. It was basically a bunch of a wish list. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. policy, it was a wish list. And even that has been weaponized, but also by our side too, because super left people will scream that it has to be, you have to enact it tomorrow. And I think one thing that's true about the left and having been an activist a lot of my life and having always been liberal, more moderate liberal, like in the last 20 years. But I think when you're young, I think a lot of Republicans now were young Democrats at, at one point. You have a lot of utopian idealistic ideals and and you don't understand why things can't change instantly, which is why you get a lot of really young idealists who become cynical. But part of it is just growing up, really. You can stay on the left, but you don't expect it to happen tomorrow. You don't expect us all to be equal and, and, and fixed tomorrow. There's some things that really should be fixed tomorrow. I think racial inequality is up there. I think prejudice against LGBTQ people, I think anti-Semitism, come on. Why, why are we we're bringing that back? Really?
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, well, and I, the other thing I think that's important for Americans to understand is that like our political spectrum is distorted. It's it's shifted further to the right. Yes, uh, than yes. Other and people don't believe that. In the world are. And like in other countries, the conservatives they support socialized medicine. Oh, yeah. In other countries, they support high, much higher minimum wages than we do. They support union negotiating Longer with all large companies. <laughs> and and yeah. yeah, and some of and in France, they're pushing for a four day work week. The conservatives are. Yeah. And so, like, and 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 that's something that for, I think a lot of people th- there's this there There's a tradition within conservatism as a philosophy that has gotten lost in the United States, which is that conservatism is actually moderation. like if you are a moderate you're actually that's what a conservative is, right, um, and that what we call conservatism in the United States is really this bizarre fundamentalist derived reactionary system that is either religiously fundamentalist or market-based fundamentalism. If you don't let the rich people do whatever they want, then it's communism.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really scary. In fact, something that uh, Chris Gibbs said to me, which he's changed his position on, Chris Gibbs, when when we were interviewing him, he was staunchly Republican. He had no plans to ever become a Democrat. He felt like Trump was the outlier. And as he was basically punished and and disappeared by his party just for disagreeing with them, he began to look deeper. But he said to me, he said, Democrats hate anyone who has more than them. It's like, no, that's that's it's different wanting people to be on a even a slightly more level playing field than to want everybody to be the same and my, my stepdaughter, when she was in college and Occupy Wall Street was going on, which turns out to be, have been kind of an op. But, but she said, she came home and she said, is it true that Democrats want everyone to make the same salary? <laughs> I said, what? She says, well, my friends at school were telling me that Democrats and liberals, they want everybody to only make the exact same amount. And uh, I don't know if that's true of the very, very, very far extreme left, but I've uh, no, no. I I, I think your mainstream Democrat, which I sort of am at this point, is pro capitalism, but we want guardrails. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm very pro capitalism, and I want it to be very strictly reg- regulated because greed is a human emotion. I mean, greed is part of who we are as people,
0: and well, and you can't have a a free market without the government protecting it from ex- to exist.
1: Well, that libertarians will tell you that's not true.
0: Yeah, well, they'll be wrong.
1: <laughs> hey, I read a great book which you would really enjoy. It's called "A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear," and it's a it's a story of this utopian libertarian community in New Hampshire and how it devolves into insanity, which is, it's, it's a great, but it's very entertaining, very entertaining. And, but also tragic in some ways, because being extremely like totally anti-government is not really possible in the world we live in now
0: too many people. Well, uh, this has been a good conversation and I appreciate you being here. Before we wrap up, though, I did want to talk about 2024. I mean, so Donald Trump, of course, has already announced that he's running for president. Do you think he's going to be able to get out of the primary or have Republicans kind of realize that this guy doesn't really, isn't really going to do anything for them?
1: I don't know. I mean, it, it, it might be a little different now past the midterms because he really, everything he Wanted to happen in the midterms, did not happen. And uh, I don't know, but he may be indicted soon. Who knows? But at the same time, apparently in America, you can be a felon and indicted and in jail and still run for president, which is seems like a kind of a big loophole. But You
0: can be dead and still win in, for, as your candidate. That's right. Um, yeah. Several people have pulled it off.
1: That <laughs> seems like a loop- loophole that should be looked at. But I think that they will defer to him even if they have second thoughts about it. I know a lot of donors have gone over to DeSantis and actually Pence has a bunch of donors too, but, but he has a huge war chest. He has money coming in from everywhere, bad places. And, and I think that they're going to run him because they're so afraid of his base. And if, he was able to get, one thing about Trump is he was able to get a lot of people who were conservative-ish and some liberal-ish people to vote for him who hadn't voted before and never thought about voting before. He got people excited. He got, I think, a lot of really apathetic people excited. He was different. He had a great shtick, but- There
0: was something that, new. Sorry? Something new.
1: Something new, exactly. And in our film, we have a little a little parable that Chris gives the farmer, tell, a folksy parable about how Trump is like, it's like you have termites in your house and you try to get rid of them. And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And then some guy comes around and says, I have everything, new chemicals, great stuff, best ever. What have you got to lose? Try it. And a lot of people said, yeah, what have we got to lose? Let's, let's try it. We're disillusioned with everything. And they realized that his solution to getting rid of the termites was just blowing up your house. <laughs> no termites. They're all dead and so is your house. But that's a great parable. And I think that the something new and we're going to do things differently. And I'm the only one. Rhetoric does work on some people. I mean, those of us who studied fascism, right, we, we understand that that rhetoric is not new. It's playbook fascism from Hitler, Mussolini, Orban, all those guys. But a lot of people don't know that Americans are notoriously history illiterate, and especially our own history. And I think that that will continue on. I do think that I think that they, I really feel like they think they're trapped by him. And a lot of people don't want him and he's a pain in the ass. And I think by this time, people have realized that he will turn on you in a heartbeat, no matter how close you are to him. If you cross him in any way, anyway, like just even a critical statement or a disagreement, you're out, you're going to be destroyed. And that's also a lesson of fascism, which I wish people would learn. I don't understand why they don't see it. You're not safe at all. Nobody's safe with fascism except the fascist and ultimately not him. But he will turn on close people. People Fascists turn on their inner circles all the time. You look at Stalin. There's all these photos where like, one person after another has been old-fashioned Photoshop, basically has been cut out of the photo until it's just him <laughs> because he's gotten rid of all the other people. And what did they do? I don't know. None of them tried to, to, to take over But whatever they did, they fell out of favor with him. They did something he didn't like, and boom, they're gone. And and they were really gone, like dead gone. I don't understand why the Republicans aren't seeing this. They don't want to see it. I think this is – but history has repeated itself so many times, so many times with this whole scenario. Read Timothy Schneider. I don't know if you read him at all. He is – he's laid it all out in a million ways in a million different languages. But I – I think he will win the primary if there is a primary. I think he will, mm-hmm. but it will divide the party even more. So I think the party is going to be wrestling with this, the Republican Party, for the next two years.
0: Okay. All right. Well, appreciate appreciate your thoughts there. So, just to before we go, put up on the on the screen. So we're, we've been speaking with Melissa Peltier. She is the writer and director of. The game is up. It's a documentary about disillusioned Trump voters, and you can get her on Twitter as well. She's on there, I'm Melissa J. Peltier. That's P-E-L-T-I-E-R for those listening. And appreciate you being here today, Melissa. Thank you. Oh, and I, I, I should add also, where can people watch the film if they want to?
1: We're on Amazon in beautiful 4K video with no ads, and I think the rental is. 3.99 or 4.99. I don't know which it is right now. Amazon has an algorithm they, that nobody okay. understands. But can they watch um, it
0: anywhere else?
1: Yes, you can watch it free with commercials though at Tubi. A lot of people have Tubi and it's a great service and then also you can watch it on YouTube at indyrights.com. Indyrights is our distributor. And okay. they have a YouTube channel and uh, all the movies there are free but there are ads.
0: Okay. Cool. All right. Well, I encourage people to check it out. And uh, thanks for uh, joining us today.
1: Thank you, Matt. Thanks. Great conversation. All right. Well, that
0: is our program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining this show and listening or watching. And another program we're going to be releasing soon as well. And hope you can join us for that. So, uh, but before we go, I did want to remind everybody that. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network, so you go to flux.community for more articles about politics, media, religion, and technology, and how they all interrelate with each other and all the larger trends in these topics. And then if you want to go to the archives of this show, just go to theoryofchange.show, and that will take you right to the episode archives. And you can get transcripts at video and audio of all the episodes. But the full transcripts are available only to the subscribers of our Patreon. So you can support us and we definitely appreciate that and your help to keep doing this. The address for that is patreon.com slash discoverflux. So thank you for watching and listening today. And I hope to catch you on the next episode. My name is Matthew Sheffield and appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself. So you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show, and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.